Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. I'm your host, Morteza Hajizadeh. And today I'm talking to uh, I'm talking with three great people about a wonderful book called The Cargo Rebellion, Those Who Chose Freedom. The book is written by Alex Studden, Jason Chang, and Ben Barson. And the great artwork in the book is by their illustrator, Kim Inthawang. Cargo Rebellion is a graphic novel. It's also a history book. It tells a true story of mutiny in which 400 indentured Chinese men overthrew their captor, the Connecticut businessman and slave trader Leslie Bryson. Alex Dunnan is a professor of history at the University of Connecticut. Jason Chang is an assistant professor of history and Asian American studies at the University of Connecticut. And Ben Barson is an assistant professor of music at Bucknell University. Welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be with you. Great. Thanks, Marteza, for having us. Thank you for accepting this invitation. Uh, let's uh, start by talking about the book, The Cargo Rebellion, Those Who Chose Freedom. So can you generally introduce the book, tell us how long it took to write the book, and talk about the structure of the book, because it's a graphic novel, it's also a history book, there are some really, really well-researched articles at the end of the book. So it would be great if you could uh, talk about the book and why you decided to uh, to approach this topic uh, through, through, writing, through creating, let's say, a graphic novel. Can I go first? Because I'll be really fast. <laughs> go ahead, please. I accidentally stumbled upon this historical incident while I was traveling in southern Japan in the spring of 2010. And there are, you know, as everybody knows, every day is a historical incident everywhere in the world. So what makes one worth telling versus another? Um, and I had been writing about it in kind of a traditional historian's way. And it was frustrating to me because this is such a vivid and visual history. Uh, and not every history demands a big screen, as it were, or a stage. Uh, and Professor Chang and I were at a conference a few years later at Harvard, and I was presenting a kind of boring academic talk. And I just started, I got bored with my own talk and I started doodling and said, Jason, how do I make this story matter? And he's like, duh, you, you have to like turn it into a graphic novel. You have to turn it into a movie. So I'm going to pass the baton to Jason because then Jason made it real. Oh, uh, wow. Well, <clears throat> I was so inspired by the research you had done um and and being able to you know dig into you know the significance of this event um you know we, we started to find out that it was meaningful for multiple audiences for multiple fields of study um for asian american studies for uh for local connecticut history for 
uh, it, it, you know, Asian maritime history, uh, global history, the, you know, the, the, the coolie diaspora, um, the indentured Asian worker diaspora. And, it, you know, I think what really spoke to me was the need to reach new audiences and that we know that, you know, traditional scholarship, you know, does not necessarily have the reach that we want it to have, to have the impact in, in the world that we want it to have. And, um, and I, you know, uh, I, as a director of the Asian and Asian American Studies Institute really wanted to, you know, return our work back to the core of Asian American studies, which puts arts at the center of interdisciplinarity. And um, and through that work, through that interpretive lens of bringing artistry and creative uh, interpretation, it allowed us to to kind of open up the story and to bring in all of these other rich characters in ways that um, that really spoke to multiple audiences. And um, and that was at the same time that we were developing new programs uh, at the Institute, which allowed us to create an, an artist in residence uh, program. That was when um, I connected with Ben, who had been a long time uh, kind of uh, uh, has had a long time connection with University of Connecticut uh, from doing a, uh, a research fellowship at the Yukon Archives uh, to uh, to really you know being in uh, in multiple uh, you know different ensembles and different connections that um, that really you know spoke to my you know my desire to bring the arts back into intellectual production and um and so you know um so w while we were you know while we were um bringing Ben's um Ben and the larger Afroyaki music collective into the institute as for the residency as a virtual residency is during the pandemic uh but we were able to start making connections uh, bringing talent, different kinds of talent, from musical talent to uh, to visual arts, to animation, to um, uh, to thinking kind of poetically about you know how to tell this story, and the 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 pieces of the puzzle kind of begin to form themselves around the story, and that was when we began to really think about what is. It, what is the balance then between telling the story visually and telling it textually? Um, and ultimately, we knew the end point we wanted to have an animated short or some sort of, you know, video component. We were thinking, okay, what's the soundtrack to this? Uh, what do we, you know, how do we, you know, imagine all of those those rich possibilities at the end point and then reverse engineer? Right. What are the things that we have to do now in order to build that? And that process was, what, two and a half years, guys? Yeah, it was really the most productive thing we all could do during the pandemic yeah. was write this book and produce yeah. these beautiful sounds and artwork. And I want to hand it over to Ben, too, to to fill in and 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 you know, help us to, to understand, you know, from your perspective, where were the, sure, sure. the, the, the connective tissue? Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Um, 
I guess the first thing I was, you know, Jason mentioned thinking poetically about um, history and, and the construction of knowledge. And I think that, um, you know, one thing as historians and any great uh, musician, um, you know, from Violeta Parra in Chile to Bob Marley in Jamaica, they're also tasked with thinking poetically about the present and the and the future and the present, but also the past and the present and how history informs our our current landscape of ideas, of demographics, of institutions. That institutions have a soul, they have a social history, and that the violence and the and the forces that have structured the past uh, continue to live in the present. It's not just a you know time travel. It's not just an anecdotal uh, tale. It's something that helps us think about. Um, the, specifically the Cargo Rebellion, one of the reasons that we were interested in telling the story is we were alarmed by the uptick of anti-Asian violence that was happening during the pandemic, uh, not you know spurred on in large part by the uh, inflammatory rhetoric of the uh, 45th president of the United States, but also um, just part of a general move towards this right-wing nationalist populism that is uh, increasingly targeting racial minorities and especially um, peoples of African, Indigenous, and Asian descent in the in the Americas and, and worldwide. And uh, we wanted to find a way to think through that upsurge in anti-Asian rhetoric and and violence and the and the and the threats that the Asian American community were facing in the United States and other places of the world with the legacies of anti-Black racism and uh, the transatlantic slave trade and try to find a way to create a historical piece that was simultaneously a, a point of departure for um, dialogue and anti-racist solidarity, uh, especially in the wake of the George Floyd uprisings in 2020. And we felt like Alexis's research really spoke to that connectivity, that sort of tissue that connected uh, the indenture uh, the indenture of uh, of Indian and um, and uh, Chinese migrants to the legacies of plantation slavery, both in terms of them working on the very same plantations in which enslaved uh, African peoples had been working, as well as the sort of continuation of uh, racialized capitalism and its ability to um, mask exploitation under the guise of uh, these racist and um, ethnocentric ideologies that justify that exploitation. And so the fact that there was this uprising that really wasn't documented, that implicated the wealth of Connecticut, of a group of wealthy merchants who, um, you know, made money, uh, bought insurance, uh, helped expand financial capital in New England and the United States more broadly and the Caribbean. Um, that And then that, that was very, that this very uh, that this very same uh, trader of, of coolies, uh, quote unquote, or indentured um, Chinese immigrants was based in Connecticut. We felt like um, being based at Yukon, we had a responsibility to tell the story and tell it well. And that's why we chose, as Jason mentioned, and Alexis mentioned previously, this format of the graphic novel. Uh, it was an excellent background to uh, to how the book came came about. And uh I, I personally found it fascinating. I absolutely had no idea about this incident. And as you mentioned, Ben, it's not an area that has maybe been uh, publicized enough. So it's great to have you here talk about it. Uh, but perhaps before I get into other questions, can you broadly tell us what is Cargo Rebellion? Just uh, We'll get into more details as we go ahead. But uh, uh, for, the, for our audience, maybe in a couple of minutes, let's explain what the historical incident was, the events was. Sure. Um, in 1852, uh, a 
ship owned by a Connecticut, New Haven-based uh, ship owner. He was captain as well, which was not always the case. Uh, captain Leslie Bryson was uh, sailing from the coast of China to what had been advertised on indenture contracts as California writ large. Uh, but the uh, the 400 uh, cargo, as coolies were described, um, basically different, you know, in the way that uh, African-American slaves were often described as logs. Cargo is cargo. It's human beings. It's trafficking. Uh, a rumor broke out whether or not it's true or not. This is, you know, this is difficult history because the coolies didn't leave records. Um, they, a rumor apparently broke out uh, that they were being trafficked to the Chincha Islands off of Peru, where the life expectancy is sort of under three months at the time because of the ammonia generated from the bird dung. And the ammonia that was harvested by the coolie labor was transported to Germany. It was the main uh, fertilizer uh, there. So... Uh, in the mix, the captain apparently ordered that the uh, Chinese men cut their queue, the, the ponytail that most Chinese men had at the time, which was uh, against the law at home. And so two competing forces combined clearly bad behavior by the captain and bad behavior by the the people running the ship. The mutiny occurred, which, as Professor Chang can explain, his research is primary in this. Uh, coolie mutinies were pretty common at the time. What's uncommon is what will happen next. A storm occurs as the mutiny is taking place. And uh, so the, the ship is uh, stuck on a reef in what is now we call Southern Okinawa, near Japan. And uh, the coolies are unloaded by the surviving crew members to lighten the ship so that they can get it off the reef and get some back to China. Um, and But what really is interesting is this begins, and this is where my research is different from uh, Professor Barson and Professor Chang. Um, I'm interested in this particular ocean, East China Sea. I work on it today. It's at the height of U.S.-China rivalry today. And that's where I focused like, oh, wow, this is what touches off the first international multinational legal debate over who owns what part of this body of water. In the mix, roughly 400 men survive. And so this is what sparks this five country debate over who's in charge and what are the limit lines in this very body of water that we hear even tonight on the news with US-China rivalry. And so the, the Cooley mutiny of 1852 aboard uh, the Robert Bone uh, actually touches off the notion of the international law of the sea, maritime jurisdiction uh, in the mix 
we have the reality, as Professor Barson was just mentioning, of racialized capitalism, as Professor Chang is mentioning of, you know, we've got human beings involved and we've got a Connecticut ship owner and how do we make this story relevant? So the ship itself is recovered the captain's dead, the first mate's dead, but 400 men survive. And the question of who owns them becomes this multinational legal debate. And again, this is 1852. I think a better known example for many of your listeners is the Amistad, La Amistad. Uh, and so that's 1839. And that's in the Atlantic. And here we're in the Pacific, but the United States itself is you know, on the verge of a of the secession. You know, we're on the verge of our civil war. And so what's fascinating to, I think, all of us involved in this project is how quickly the U.S. government has to shut this story down. Because as Professor Barson is mentioning, this is a sort of hidden shadow capitalism of slavery at the time that needs to be better appreciated. The, that is to say, the, human, the trafficking of Chinese labor to the United States in particular as a, a substitute once African slavery is outlawed. And so that's where this story has enormous historical import. And again, the mutiny itself wasn't particularly unusual. What's unusual is the sheer number of survivors and that it becomes this multinational legal debate between the United States, the Qing court of China, uh, what is then the Tokugawa shogunate of Japan, the British Empire, and uh, the Ryukyu kingdom. Still, what we know today as Okinawa was an independent kingdom at the time. Uh, and you did mention a couple of important uh, uh, historic events, the, ha uh, the Amstead mutiny, and there was also the Haitian Revolution. And, and I think it's uh, very helpful to consider it in the broader context of transatlantic slave trade. Uh, so I'm, I'm keen to hear more about that if uh, Jason can maybe talk more. And we will talk about some of the aspects you mentioned, Alexis, about how it turned into an international um, you know, legal issues uh, soon afterward. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, you know, the one of the things that I think this story helps to illuminate is that that Asian work Asian indentured workers were being interpreted through the idiom of the day at the time around what did what did non what were the rights of non-white workers? And the only language that the United States had for this was, you know, sort of, you know, free labor and unfree labor. And unfree labor was really tied to blackness. And um, and so in this era, what we see is, again, this assertion of blackness in the Pacific. And uh, and so the argument that that the cargo belonged to the United States was, in essence, an assertion of that same kind of logic used to govern the Atlantic and the slave trade there. The Qing court's interpretation of the of of the incident was was that the actual crime happened on the shores of China, with the kidnapping of of these workers. The you know that they were they were they were brought into uh, um, uh, you know fraudulent contracts. Uh, 
And, and so, you know, there it's asserting the humanity of, of the workers first. And, um, and so, you know, what happens in later on in nineteen in the eighteen sixties is President Lincoln, you know, puts a ban on U.S. participation in the traffic in indentured Asian workers, and it's incidents like this one that happened on the Robert, Robert Bone in eighteen fifty two that really began to create this connection between unfree labor and Asian workers. And and that was, you know, so in as as President Lincoln and the Republicans were working on identifying um, the sort of politics around emancipation and the ending of slavery in the United States, they were also they also attached that same that same categorization of unfree labor to Chinese workers and that coolies were almost synonymous were with uh, with enslaved workers and that banning us traffic in asian workers was it to their minds the same you know a, a part of banning the trade in unfree workers and so you know that led to a lot of other kinds of associations and and then it kind of led to um the label coolie being attached to all Chinese immigrants, right? And so as a derogatory term, it it began to, you know, uh, create that association. And um, and so when we think about the, the larger arc of Asian American history, right, typically the story starts with, kind of, you know, gold rush immigrants, railroad workers, right? But if we zoom out to include the 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 uh, diaspora of of indentured Asian workers, right, and this period, we also see that it's has its has much deeper connections to uh, to enslavement, deeper connections to colonization and imperialism, and that those 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 origin points help us to map out a much more rich kind of understanding of the 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 stakes of asian american history and so you know these are some of the ways that that we think this story kind of can, makes makes important connections across uh across the historical field and uh you, you mentioned railroad i a few months ago again i was talking to another author about a book called racial uh rail and i again i for one did not know that there were a lot of asian americans working as rail workers because to me it was only uh african uh slaves who were working on railroad but again there was this history of completely erasing them uh from the history of rail railways in in america and uh i'm, I'm really curious to know more about the term coolies i did not know that term so it would be great if you could define what it is and the reason i'm really interested in that's some research that i have to do later on on my part i'm originally from iran myself and in our language in farsi the word for gypsy is coli uh, which is very very similar to this so when i read the word coolie in your book i quickly googled it i read the it's not an english word and i'm pretty much sure the word that is in Farsi has something to do with this, but I'll need to research it further on. So it would be great if you could talk about that word, who were coolies? And also you did mention that the, the, they worked under some sort of a contract 
but if that's is it how is it similar or different from slavery from from slave labor mm. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot, Ben, you should jump in too. Um, so, you know, the, the term coolie, there's multiple origins for this, but you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of people point to, um, to port workers, the workers that, that, that were in, uh, in trade ports that could, um, that could participate in, um, that could help unload ships and to move, you know, move resources in and out of the port, and uh, and that these were kind of um, you know sort of day laborer kind of you know relationships. Um, there was in the 1830s, there was a need to respond to uh, to you know plantations across the world were dealing with you know with the emancipation of their enslaved populations and uh and they turned to uh they 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 started experimenting with different sources and one of the sources were these port workers and the and in the establishment of uh of some initial kind of experiments uh linking south asian and Chinese workers to plantations in the Caribbean created a viable kind of, you know, uh, um, uh, plan for them to execute. And then what they did was they eventually, you know, took the infrastructure of the, the Atlantic slave trade and pivoted to the Pacific. So you had many ships that were uh, that were previously uh, engaged in the Atlantic shifting markets to the Pacific. And um, and so that that system became institutionalized under the British and they established a system for uh, for recruiting and um, and identifying sort of, you know, like a ship manifest would include the cargo of of indentured workers under contract. And it would, you know, so so many of these contracts were were sometimes produced under you know fraudulent conditions you know, and there are many other ways of putting it um but you know some some did agree to the terms of the contract others were forced into it others were simply you know kidnapped and and brought on board uh these ships and 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 taken off um in under conditions which uh they were you know they were shackled uh, they were kept um, uh, in cages in some ca in some cases. Uh, and one thing to note is that the practice of seasoning um, you know, seasoning enslaved people in in the Middle Passage was a practice established in the in the Atlantic with enslavement of Africans. And many of those same practices of quote seasoning, which they would use to break the will and the spirit of the workers during the during the voyage, um, was preparation for the market that they were going to be sold in. But in for the in the case of indentured Asian workers, it was they were using the same seasoning techniques to prepare them for uh, for docile work on plantations, or in, in some cases the the, the guano uh, fields of of the Chincha Islands. Um, 
if I could so, just jump in, because I'm not, you know, this is one of those things because there are Chinese characters for cootie. Um, but to the best of my understanding and what Jason's been discussing, especially since it's a British uh, operation in the in the global trade of trafficking, I think it's fascinating that this term uh, resonates in Persian and Farsi as well, perhaps, because I believe it is a Tamil word in its origin. Uh, I, but again, I don't know. It's a South, it, for, to the best of my knowledge, the term derives from South Asia, which would make sense. I mean, in the opium trafficking from British ships into China at the time. Uh, so to the best of my knowledge, it is a Tamil term. Indenture, I, I find absolutely fascinating. It's a form of contract uh, that actually, so the, the word denture those of us who have teeth right it's a it's a piece of paper that you that's ripped and like jagged teeth once one is supposed to have completed the indenture service servitude period you have to find the person that's made the contract to fit the teeth of the of the piece of paper back together which obviously is almost impossible. This applied to numerous migrant groups. Um, you know, many, uh, many people in the United States of Irish descent, for example, came as indent on in terms of indenture. But the indenture contract actually literally means that something that looks like jagged teeth that need to be put back together. Um, but as as Jason has mentioned, in many, most cases, especially in the Pacific, uh, we're talking about a form of slavery. If I could just jump in uh, briefly. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm learning so much right now, just listening to Professors Chang and Dutton. Thanks for sharing this information again. Um, uh, I guess one thing that maybe is pertinent to mention is the context of the opium war and the abolition of slavery in, in Britain is that these um, uh, the, the British Empire, the United Kingdom abolished slavery in 1834. And five years later, it initiates the first opium war, one of uh, two initiating what um, contemporary um, Chinese historians and uh, citizenry referred to as the century of humiliation, the Chinese contract, uh, the, the, the Chinese economy um, contracts, uh, according to some estimates for this century, instead of expands while uh, Europe enjoys a uh, uh, the, the the fruits of industrial revolution um, on the backs of uh, exploited and enslaved labor. In fact, even after the abolition of slavery, as Ed Baptist has pointed out, another historian, um, British uh, merchants and firms were invested in the expanding cotton production in the United States Southwest. So. Um, you know the argument. I think that the deeper argument is that the is that capitalism and the industrial revolution was really powered by these massive geopolitical disturbances and dislocations that colonialism and um, the subsequent uh, migration and outmigration of peoples uh, result um, and the and the subsequent outmigration of peoples that were victims of this process. And so the con the terms in which these contracts were signed were in the midst of widespread social um, uh, destruction, essentially, um, you know, not only because of military occupation, but because the Chinese government and the Qing uh, court was essentially prohibited from intervening on behalf of its um, of its subjects. 
And um, I mean, HSBC, the the one of the major banks, uh, receives uh, developed its first base of capital in in uh, in Hong Kong during this time period. I mean, there are major financial institutions that have their roots in this time period. This isn't like a hypothesis or a far fetched argument. So Ed Baptist and many other historians, uh, Marcus Redeker, um, that have touched on slavery in the United States have have pointed out that. Uh, financial markets, insurance, um, the political economy of the United States really marches hand in hand with the expansion of slavery in the Southwest frontier. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do with the Robert, uh, with this with the story of this mutiny is look at how those cycles and this the institutional development of global commerce and capitalism is directly tied to the indenture of coolies, both as uh, both as a both as hands and in the in different plantations, as well as as actual uh, human beings whose contracts, if not their actual bodies, were bought and sold on markets. And um, uh, there's tons of um, really exciting um, you know historians and researchers that have come out in the past few decades of Lydia Liu of uh, Lydia Liu of uh, Lisa Yoon. Um, Jason's own work and other uh, Professor Chang's own work and other contexts um, has also illuminated this history. But it's interesting to note that uh, commentators in this time period compared the coolie trade to slavery. Uh, for instance, in 1874, a correspondent uh, for the New York Herald, James O'Kelly, uh, compared the coolie trade to uh, the transatlantic slave trade, and he and he wrote, contrary to the representations made about the traffic in, Asi in Asiatics, was treated in every respect the same way as his sable or dark-skinned companions in misfortune. And an, an actually another um, a United States citizen who was actually a special commissioner to Cuba, Robert Porter, wrote in 1899, the Chinese were virtually slaves until the Chinese government intervened on their behalf. So this was very much uh, an analogy that was made during the time um, by uh, a, as much by uprising uh, Chinese and South Asian workers um, in, in the Pacific, as well as by uh, white and, and American officials who are aware that, um, you know, either by, who are admitting either because of, a, you know, their conscious or because they saw the advantages of expanding this form of, uh, of servant of uh, servantile labor, um, that this was analogous to slavery. And it was a way for the British Empire and later the United States South to continue um, their hyper hyper profitability in the production of raw commodities, whether it was cotton, sugar, etc. So um, I don't think the question is, how is it different from slavery? But how is it sort of a transformation of slavery and the principles of political economy and racism, which uh, the transatlantic slave trade unleashed? And a kind of shadow economy in that respect, too, right? Because it's still and that's, I think, what we're all hoping that cargo can achieve in in teaching and a conversation um is that you know this is there is much there we as americans still need to have a lot more conversations about reparations for african american slavery the terms are better known so even your question you know where does the term coolie come from for a long time uh i i was hesitant even to use the term because of sort of derogatory connotations and I shied away from it. 
And so, you know, sort of a, capturing the historicity of the word and demonstrating this is a term at the time, this is akin in many ways to the term slave, human trafficking as part of this words that you know are still debated mean by definition we have a lot to learn and so if any of, of our intervention can help bring this to a conversation i think that's what we're trying to do is say and and people you know friends colleagues relatives of mine just you know i had no idea this had happened i had no idea this went on in the pacific and that's sort of especially in east coast white perspective but we need as as you know it has been raised by both ben and jason uh many people of uh, you know chinese descent in the united states today didn't just come on some happy go lucky trip to get rich and the the narrative that portrays you know how chinese got to the united states is very much challenged by the reality of what the term coolie means uh, thank you, Ben, uh, Jason, and Alex. I think it's important to 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 note that this event wasn't an isolated event, just as Ben provided some historical background. Uh, and I think it makes more sense to look at it in the grand scheme of things. How there were a lot of you know rebellions. It was a transformation, as uh, Alex, as you mentioned, rather than let's say rather than so it's a transformation of that that kind of labor. And let, let's talk about maybe the the antagonist of this story. Leslie Bryson, and uh, th this is a graphic novel, so maybe it's we, we don't want to spoil a lot there, but I think it's good to have some historical information about who who was this Leslie Bryson and what were some of his destinations, and maybe we could give you could give more details about this mutiny that happened um, on his ship. I'm going to pass the baton to Jason after I say one of the most important things to bear in mind is that there is a grave, a, a headstone for him today in New Haven, Connecticut, but no mention in Connecticut of what he was doing. And yet in Okinawa, in Ishigaki, Japan, is a big giant tomb, a, a sort of monument tomb to the, the coolies. And so the disconnect in how to remember who counts in this history. Leslie Bryson is a ship owner, a ship's captain from Connecticut, who by virtue of how he's remembered today in the United States is an honorable man. Whereas he'd been, you know, trafficking cargo, humans. And the a friendship association in the early 1970s in Ishigaki, where the incident, where the, the uh, survivors came ashore in southern Japan, uh, a friendship association between Japan and China erected the monument to remember the lives that were at stake. And uh, what I also found really interesting in, in this particular small island in southern Japan is the work of local activists and historians um, almost from the beginning to try to honor and find names for the dead and you know just to regard them as 
humans of equal value. Whereas Leslie Bryson, you know, you can look him up and he's a human and he's he's regarded. But that's the the part that Jason's own research really brings to the fore. Yeah. So, you know, one thing to keep in mind about Leslie's, the, the Mr. Bryson is that there was a whole class of these these kinds of traders that made Connecticut the kind of place that it was. Uh, Connecticut was their economy was grounded in maritime trade, was grounded in the whaling industry. So the connections to the ocean, to the to trade, um, is what made Connecticut uh, it's uh, you know a a, a place uh, you know a a a, a um, a trade depot and a source for um, for maritime expertise, and um, and so it was also a place where you know the rich forestry resources allowed for many people to to build boats, and uh, and so you know Connecticut's you know role also has, is is in in the global economy was one producing vessels that could do deep ocean travel, uh, producing um, uh, uh, sailing expertise and 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 organizing um, you know long long ocean voyages for either trade or the collection of, of whale oil um, and that these are the things that um, that brought wealth to Connecticut and um, and that they they also um, they were also a part of um, of expanding racial capitalism through that reach by by creating that expertise by creating those resources and so you know let you know uh, Leslie Bryson's story is you know fairly common in in Connecticut uh, the the you know many people went from ag- used the wealth generated in agriculture to create you know to buy their first vessels or to create the you know to buy their first insurance policies that would allow them to uh to make you know trips to the caribbean uh or to africa um and so you know these you know what what leslie bryson was doing at the time was not exceptional uh this was a standard kind of way of of you know you know, being uh, a you know sort of capitalist class in in coastal Connecticut, and um, and so you know the 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 wealth in Connecticut is derived from these kinds of 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 relationships, and um, and so you know these you know, this was this was sort of the background that that many you know captains came from, and um, and. And Connecticut whalers and Connecticut um, ship captains um, were, you know, were, you know, sort of best in class and uh, because of what they were doing um, and that they could deliver cargo uh, in a timely manner. And, um, and, and and that this was, you know, this was something um, that as, as the emphasis from the Atlantic shifted to the Pacific, in terms of, you know, sourcing new, you know, um, uh, racialized labor that um, that they were also put into a position where they had to learn new waters, they had to learn new uh, new routes, and uh, and that meant also that they made a lot of mistakes, and so American um, uh, 
you know, Americans who participated in the Pacific trade um, had, a, you know, also there were large fatalities on American boats because of their, you know, they weren't familiar with uh, with some of the currents, with some of the trade routes. Uh, and so that so that is also a part of the character of the American participation in in the trade in indentured workers. And uh, and how did this coolie trade come to an end? Did it come to an end and what prompted it? Mm. Um, it well, in some ways, we could say that there are still you know many forms of indenture that exist today that you know that continued that in fact i've i've found records of people still being imported as indentured workers to cuba in the 20th century in the early 20th century so so the the formal kind of ending of it is you know is typically marked around the 1870s 1874 some people mark that year um one of the interesting kind of connections is also brings back Connecticut. Uh, So one of the key figures in organizing the Chinese diplomatic mission to Cuba as a sort of fact-finding investigative unit was Yong Wing, who was a student, a Chinese student uh, studying or had studied in Connecticut. Uh, and he was the first Asian American to graduate from uh, American institution of higher education. And uh, and his connection with the Americans, his um, his ability to uh, to work with uh, with Chinese uh, diplomats, um, you know, really made him an ideal candidate at that time to facilitate this kind of connection. And so it was you know, was Yong Wing was a part of this uh, from Connecticut was as part of uh, producing a uh, a report that relied on first person interviews with uh, with workers in Cuba uh, to understand the brutality that they faced the um, uh, the 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 la- you know in and in legalistic terms they were trying to expose the violations of the contract. Right, the the violations that the indenture had had, had promised them, and uh, and so by by using the contract as the kind of you know as a kind of you know to see how much reality matched you know with what the, what was promised them, whether it's in terms of you know offering uh, uh, um, medical service right or to address illness or to address time off uh for rest uh you know um how much food was going to be provided right like some of those things were just like not offered at all <laughs> and uh and 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 so those were opportunities to really delve into the actual lived experience that uh that these chinese workers you know experienced but the what is fascinating about it is that it demonstrates, as Ben was saying, that 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 racial capitalism was evolving and changing with new bodies. And um, and so their stories tell us, you know, that um, that this was also, um, you know, that the, this was also a way that um, that new bonds were formed between uh between the indentured workers and also the 
previously enslaved workers uh, from Africa. And so these um, uh, the the revelation of these conditions produced by the Cuba Commission report produced um, produced a, a new kind of uh, source of evidence um that that brought these 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 conversations together which were previously you know you know argued that there were you know there were sort of differences there and if we you know just to to piggyback on that if we think about this we're we're having this conversation at the end of june 2023 when we've got a wild maritime crisis disconnect happening in the press right we've got this you know the billionaires who unfortunately died tragically in their quest to visit the titanic the other day Peril, you know, juxtaposed with the over 700 migrants from Syria, Egypt, Pakistan, uh, who have drowned off of Greece. And this, you know, the the what we're talking about in terms of racial capitalism at sea continues when we hear the tragic story of the, the cousins from Pakistan who paid smugglers over 8,000 US dollars a piece to be taken in conditions that sound very historically resonant, beatings, uh, you know, horrible conditions, having food in front of them thrown overboard so that they're punished for their very existence. This is horrifying and yet is connects to this deeper history. If you know, you think about the the incident we're trying to introduce these wider histories with um, the American diplomat in China at the time was improbably named Peter Parker. It's not Spider-Man, but he actually was named Peter Parker. And he was livid. He wasn't livid that people had died. He wasn't livid by the conditions of of what was happening in terms of what Chinese law defined at the time as the quote unquote buying and selling of pigs, which is how Chinese law referred to the coolie trade at the time. He was horrified that an American captain had been murdered at sea and had had his, you know, his property taken away. So we're just sort of still in American capitalist mindset there. At the same time, it's 1852. The United States government didn't touch it. Ultimately, Secretary, then Secretary of State Daniel Webster didn't let the incident get any bigger because this economy of traffic, this economy of cargo movement was so critical to the development, as Ben was saying, of American profit. And American growth at the time. And I think that's, you know, the larger history we're talking about is we have these stories of hard work, which are not untrue, but hard work and ethic and moral fiber bring about the great United States were built on the backs of genocide and slavery. And that in a small way is what we're trying to introduce with this story. Yeah, thanks, Alexis, for bringing in the migration angle. I, I just want to, uh, you know, add to the conversation about how the Cooley trade ended and how it really didn't end uh, in many ways. But just noting that the, um, in its sort of characteristic way, the United States um, attempted to deal with some of the, I mean, a lot of the discourse aimed against the, um, you know, peoples of Chinese descent, um, were that they were you know, taking good jobs away from hardworking, you know, white Americans. 
And um, its solution to this was not holding um, plantation owners or merchants, um, like uh, holding plantation owners or merchants accountable. It was to basically prevent Chinese immigration into the United States. One of the very first uh, immigration acts, if not the first passed by the United States was in the spring of 1882 with the Chinese Exclusion Act uh, passed by President Arthur, which was a 10-year ban on Chinese laborers immigrating to the United States and really remains in place and really remained in place in some shape or form um, until Congress passed the Immigration Act of 1965. Um, there was um, quotas introduced in 1943, um, and the act was um, reinstated various times for in 10-year extensions um, through the 20th century, but um, just widespread um, banning of a, a whole continent or subcontinent, essentially a very resonant uh, with the types of discourses and, and um, initiatives that are uh, very much in the political imagination of the modern right today, and very much uh, continuing to punch down instead of um, look up at the uh, at these abusers of human rights that you know have deliberately created the geopolitical conditions, um, sanctions, blockades, destabilization of foreign um, governments that aren't aligned with aren't aligned with the uh, you know. Washington project um, to produce these waves of migrants, which do low paid work under very dangerous, uh, unauthorized, illegitimate, illegible conditions, and then are blamed for their condition as opposed to um, the social forces and the um, and the profiteers of these um, of of these uh, displaced migrants. So I think that um, it's really the the restriction of immigration that that ends the contemporary coolie trade, at least in the continental United States, but it con continues in other parts of the world and in the Caribbean. In contrast, in Cuba, it's interesting that the Chinese are continue to be honored as fighters in their independence war. There's a there was said that there's not a single Chinese uh, soldier defected um, to Spanish lines, and there's a monument honoring the Chinese contribution. Um, to the Cuban independence movement in La Havana, in La Havana, in La Havana. So, I think, um, yeah, it's just sad how the United States uh, dealt with its participation in this uh, racialized political economy. And I think our, I think cargo, the cargo rebellion, is an attempt to force us to rethink that um, and its implications for how we think about Asian American history and um, the institutions that continue to profit off of human human trafficking today. Thank you very much, Ben, for adding this extra information. And I'm really enjoying this conversation because we're not only talking about a historic event, but we are also making connections to how this legacy still survives and how it's related to everyday uh, issues of uh, racial capitalism. Uh, and that's why I'd like to ask a couple other questions, which is more about contemporary issues. So. Uh, maybe first we should start by saying how how this whole uh, this 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 cargo rebellion and coolie trade how did it become a legal debate over uh, over the mutiny uh, that connects U.S. China Taiwan and Japan together and maybe then if we could also talk about how this relates to today's tensions in East China sure. East China Sea uh, tensions yeah yeah I mean what so there are. Uh, we can never be certain exactly where 
uh, the mutiny happened or where the, the ship lost control. Uh, but it's pretty close to the uninhabitable islets that are disputed uh, in the East China Sea today among uh, Japan, China, and Taiwan. They're called the Senkaku in Japanese, the Diaoyudai in China. Um, and so it's rough, roughly there. And what's interesting is today we have an entirely different uh, legal system, legal structure, on the one hand for the ocean with limit lines and you know you get 12 miles of territorial sea and there are you know exclusive economic zones and overlapping this and air defense identification zones uh it's it, it, in in the east china sea where this incident occurred it's a very dangerous game of testing between different navies and air forces right now what's fascinating to me historically is at the time it, it it's simply a body of water in 1852 and you know noticeably it's still called the east china sea there's no dispute over the name of this body of water but it is to the east coast of the chinese mainland um for Japan, at the time this occurs, Japan's not even Japan yet. It's got a Tokugawa shogun. It doesn't even have the empire of Japan that we know will come about and will colonize Taiwan and attempt to conquer China. But in the mix, you get an American-owned slave trafficking ship, essentially, and the American government representative wants to stake a claim for the United States at the time because the United States is on the verge, hasn't yet sent Matthew Perry, who's going to quote unquote, open Japan to trade and begin an entire new Japan for modern history. Um, but he, he's on the verge of this moment and the United States Navy has only three ships and is bested by the British Navy that has to go pick up, I mean, which is unimaginable today. If you think about the sheer size of the U.S. 7th Fleet today, which is home ported today in Japan, the United States doesn't even have a boat to go pick up the survivors at the time. At the same time, this is a moment that the United States is trying to compete with Great Britain for who's going to be more powerful in Asia. You know, we've got the Ben raised the question of the opium wars. We're about to begin what today China refers to as the century of humiliation. And yet at the same time, America is about to take over Japan in some ways. It, you know, we're still there. The United States' presence in these islands where this incident occurred is monumental, right? I mean, the American military has effectively never left Japan since 1945. And so you, I got interested in this incident because it's through the diplomatic debates that the notion of who controls this vital waterway begins. And it's still on. That debate is still on. Who owns this water? Where is this? I mean, you know, we're talking about a very shallow ocean, actually. This is not an this is not a mineral-rich sea. What it is, however, is a vital passage to get Chinese today to get Chinese goods to market 
right? And so the United States and Japan are trying to do this uh, cordon off China, another version of containment theory by cordoning China in right where this incident occurred nearly 170 years ago. And so that's, to me, what's fascinating about looking at the legal debate of we need to teach Asia what the notion of a high seas space is, whereas the Chinese officials are saying, this is human trafficking. We need to tell you this is a crime that occurred on land. This isn't a crime that occurred at sea. And that's where you know it, it does, to me, connect to this this terrible tragedy that just occurred in Greece. Where is the crime committed? that in this tragedy of the the migrant vessels in the Mediterranean, is it solely the Greek Coast Guard or is it the smugglers on land? Who who is responsible for trafficking these people? And where, you know, how do people take responsibility when all nations are just sort of trying to pass the buck? And that's exactly to me what happened historically in 1852 and why it is really important for us to introduce this history because precisely the United States did not allow this to become a, an incident the way Amistad did. And the, the La Amistad legal debate, which took place also in New Haven and in a court in New Haven, Connecticut, did help bring about the end of African-American slavery. And yet this incident, the Robert Bone mutiny, never made the international press, as it were, never got to court, despite the, the, the Americans wanted to turn it into an incident, except then they realized if they lost control over this trafficking, they would lose a huge part, as, as Ben and Jason have been talking about, of building the American economy at the time. I think... Um... One of the things Alexis is, uh, Professor Dutton is drawing our attention to uh, in a really powerful way is how um, uh, U.S. foreign policy is a um, is a civil rights issue, you know, and that um, it has consequences um, for the lives of folks, regular people in those countries, uh, many of whom, especially if the um, if the foreign policy is effective in its containment strategies, um, which uh, in the case of China, it, it was for quite some time, produces waves of migrants um, fleeing economically dire and politically complex and unstable conditions. Uh, today in Venezuela, um, uh, or today in response to um, Biden's uh, continuation of the maximum pressure strategy that Trump developed in Venezuela, um, 21 Democratic Congress um, people, including Alexandria Osario-Cortez and Cory Bush, uh, signed a letter uh, pointing out that the economic factors that are driving historic levels of Venezuelan outmigration are very much a deliberate result of U.S. policy. And I'm just thinking back to the outrage in the um, in the media in the United States when, as Russia interference was uh, more and more uncovered and exposed in the 2020 presidential elections. Um, you know, how much U.S. Taxpayer, taxpayer money, as Timothy Gill, a, a political sociologist, has pointed out in a recent book, how many millions and millions of dollars go to um, funding oppositional candidates in countries in the global south to uh, support 
candidates that are more pro-free trade or specifically more pro-free trade with the United States and Western powers. Um, we can't separate uh, these things. We can't only care about, um, you know, we can't only fight for civil rights within the continental borders of the United States as it currently stands. What's happening in the East China Sea, what's happening wherever the United States is involved politically and economically is going to have consequences in our in our country. It's going to affect the treatment of um, those populations in the United States. It's going to affect their opportunities in their own country. And it's going to affect uh, the development of our political discourse and our imagination in terms of how Americans see the world and how they structure it and which countries are uh, winners and which countries are losers and and who and who is fit to rule. Um, and obviously, I don't think any of us subscribe to that in this room. But I think that what I'm trying to say is that I don't think it's sufficient for us to only um, fight for equality, for whether it's racial, gender, economic equality within the United States. We have to look broadly and we have to take seriously U.S. foreign policy and how it's how it's productive in a negative sense of some of these um, of some of these really terrifying conditions that we're confronting. So that's exactly what, once again, the Cargo Rebellion is an attempt to to really historicize that legacy of the intersection of United States foreign policy, of the evolution of international law, and its um, and its bias towards protecting property over human over human lives. In this case, property meaning the the human cargo on these ships. And it's very real consequences for human rights, um, and 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 we believe that, or I believe that, we, we believe that working through these issues is an ethos towards decolonization of both knowledge of history and our in our relations with one another. So that's that's how I think this story continues to resonate in the present day. Mm -hmm. I mean, thank you. Oh, sorry. It's okay to. To, stop, to talk? Yeah, I think I think it's still recording. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, thank you, Alexis and Ben. Uh, I mean, every time we talk about this project and how it resonates, it it it's it's so inspiring to you know to share this with uh, with with other audiences, with other folks, um, and I think. One other dimension I would add to that is how the cargo rebellion story sheds light on 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 how the actions of uh, of regular folks can contribute to uh, to changing history. Uh, and even though this this didn't become the Amistad of the Pacific, uh, this mutiny didn't become the Amistad of the Pacific. It 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 created uh, more frustration. It created uh, uh, challenges to to the order that 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 put them on the boat. Um, and you know, I think of this as related to uh, current you know discussions over uh, stateless people, uh, over refugees. Uh, over other displaced people. I mean, the you know, we have more displaced people now than ever before uh, with the prospect of deepening uh, displacement due to climate change and uh, and the ongoing uh, territorial wars uh, that you know continue to produce mass displacements um, the, that these that the conditions set up 
you know, uh, the historical conditions set up uh, and in in our story uh, have parallels and and deep uh, resonance with with events of the 21st century, and and that these are. Um, these are lessons that uh, that we need to relearn, and we need to practice those uh, those forms of of recognition and and struggle, as as Ben was saying. And I think for for me, uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, I see this work and others like it as essential for the. 21st century, you know, K through 12 education. And uh, here in Connecticut, uh, we have a new law that brings that that makes um, Asian American and Pacific Islander studies uh, mandatory. Uh, we're very proud to include Native studies, LGBTQIA studies, Black and 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 Latinx studies. So um, so you know, in a, in producing that new material, we really I want to be intentional about. About bringing Asian American stories that are that are connected to Connecticut's history, to our to, to out where we live, and um, here in in this state, and and that I think if given the opportunity for other states to do the same kind of of research, that they will find very similar chapters in their own history. Uh, that this is um, this is you know something that I that uh, the way I've been thinking about our project here is that we are engaged in homegrown Asian American studies, uh, that we're really looking at how did this story unfold here in Connecticut. And, um, and so in, in addition to, uh, to the, the comic book and the animated short, we also have an eighth grade lesson, uh, that goes along with this, that shares primary source material, uh, data stories on uh, on the scope and scale and magnitude of the of, of the trade and indenture workers from China, um, and that really gives students a lot to connect with to bring it into their understanding of the mid nineteenth century to their understanding of the transformations and race relations of the United States during the Civil War period. Uh, that this uh, is really a you know shouldn't be a standalone chapter that you learn as as unconnected that this is a deeply embedded in uh in u.s history and world history we can't uh, we can't uh, hear you more tessa uh, alexis you're on mute <laughs> i was muted i think the way that uh jason was just explaining this is really important for people living maybe outside of connecticut or outside of new england in the united states too because you know, we have these, we were discussing who Captain Bryson was earlier. We were talking about the notion of the sort of heroic Yankee and success story. Um, and none of us teaches history to make people feel badly about themselves, right? And I think we need to sort of understand that this isn't an effort to sort of say, well, you know, white people are bad. That's that's not the point. The point is the deep interconnections of all of these histories that brought the United States to its place today actually has the potential to make American school children and beyond understand their responsibility to the future. 
and not just the past. And when uh, Jason was just speaking about his, you know, great success in bringing these uh, lesson plans to uh, school children in both the elemental, elementary, excuse me, and middle school curricula, um, there's a wonderful man named um, Brian Stevenson. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. Uh, he's, a, he's brought about uh, this amazing monument to lynching in Montgomery, Alabama. And um, his, Brian Stevens, excuse me, um, the Equity Justice Initiative. And at that uh, memorial, it demonstrates that lynching didn't just happen in the Southern states of the United States, that it happened throughout uh, what was the United States. And he, in the whole memorial project, has visitors look and recognize that maybe if you're from Pennsylvania, maybe close to where Ben is sitting right now in this recording, a lynching might have taken place and you're supposed to take from this museum a, a brick back with you or a monument back with you and try to bring the history to your town. And I think that that's also what Jason is, is emphasizing here is, yes, here we are in coastal Connecticut where ship's captain's houses are, you know, there are few of them, but they are gorgeous. And then you go to Long Island and there they are and they're gorgeous and coastal Massachusetts. And yet the entire economy of trade that surrounds it is still extant and here we all are. You know, I'm sitting in a house right now that is on Native American land because by definition, I'm in Connecticut and the word is a Pequot word. And so, you know, what, and Ben's in Pennsylvania, which is a made up Latin word based on William Penn and his, you know, efforts at colonizing what was expropriated territory. And so I think that that's maybe also something that our effort is trying to introduce is a way to teach younger kids, you know, okay, you got to own where you are. And that's not unique to the United States. It's, you know, we look at settler colonization in Canada, in the in Latin America, uh, in Australia. But then we also look at who's driving the the who's driving the slave trades, right? And so it's just this effort to globalize a very small incident with, again, the, the modest hope to have recognition that this story endures and goes on. I think, and at the risk of being over time here, um, thank you, Morteza, for your graciousness and allowing us to extrapolate um, part of uh, thinking poetically about history and about um, our present circumstances, it's not a romanticization or only focusing on the beauty, but also the the, the terror and the um, almost surrealist terror that has gripped the racial imagination of the United States. And uh, I, as a um, as a white man engaging with this history, uh, you know, work to. Um, decenter myself and try to um, learn from uh, learn about my own formation through these histories of expropriation of and um, exploitation as well as of resistance and the alternatives that were encapsulated in in these other forms of social relations which were shared um, by the Chinese 
uh, indentured workers on different plantations in the Caribbean, the United States South. Um, the essay I wrote in this volume is actually on the development of the drum set, which I uh, trace the collaboration between African Americans and Chinese immigrants in the plantations of Louisiana and how there was a cultural corollary to the types of political solidarities that they forged um, on these sugarcane fields. Um, but I guess just to bring back to what Alexa mentioned and, and um, what Jason mentioned in terms of our initiative to uh, make an actively anti-racist or provide curricular materials that are actively anti-racist, um, both for Connecticut high school students and the wider American public. And obviously we're in the context of a, of a right-wing attack on uh, what they call wokeness. And um, I think that there's something very powerful about this kind of history and the type of uh, critical, uh, the critical theory that comes with it as your whole podcast is dedicated to Morteza. And um, I think back to this James Baldwin quote um, when in his book, The Fire Next Time, that has always guided me. Uh, he's uh, writing an, an um, I believe his uncle is writing a letter to him, uh, to James, or the or the protagonist of the of the novel, or the kind of semi autobiographical novel. And he writes, um, they are in effect writing about um, white Americans still trapped in a history which they do not understand, and until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. And I love that quote because um, racism and white supremacy are also poisonous to uh, white people. Um, it prevents them from forming organic bonds, not only with uh, people of color, but within members of their own community. And so I think that there's something really healing and, and important for young white Americans to learn about this history, to say, I'm not okay with this. I'm not okay being a pawn in uh, you know, these social divisions which are around me. And I need to take responsibility for its reproduction and, and preventing its reproduction in, in these new generations. On that note, I do want to say we're really happy to be published with PM Press, which is a small activist press based in Ithaca. One of the other graphic novels that uh, historical graphic novels they released uh, in the past uh, year is a book called The Day the Klan Came to Town by Bill Campbell, illustrated by Bizan Golabende. And it's actually about a Ku Klux Klan rally in Carnegie, Pennsylvania, 19. 23, which is right outside where I live in Pittsburgh. And so um, there's also a book on a graphic novel on Maroons called um, or escaped uh, folks who escaped um, in slavery of African descent in the Americas called Maroon Comics by Quincy Saul. There's just a lot of really great um, works that are kind of continuing the same type of spirit we're doing here. And I think we're very excited to be part of a wave of new history from below. That's really um trying to answer James Baldwin's call in the fire next time. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. I, I love James Baldwin. Again, it's a perfect way to bring this conversation to an end. And, uh, and and it's great that you also mentioned PM Press. I did not know about that press until I came across your book on Facebook and the whole my, my whole recent interest in history from below. Thank you very much, Professor Dudden, Professor Chang, and Professor Barson for this fascinating conversation. <clears throat> I enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you so much for facilitating it. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Morteza. Yeah, it's been an honor, Morteza. Thanks for letting us share our thoughts with you.